You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. A little after 2.30 here in the beautiful upper Midwest, a part of the country with plenty of water, I need to say, to those of you who are uh, not having so much fun. Um, and speaking of fun, um, <laughs> Megan Hatcher Mays has been on the show a couple times. She is really quite fabulous and thoughtful and um has a point of view, as you can imagine, about what's going on. She's the uh, director of democracy policy for Indivisible. Uh, she leads their advocacy. It began as advocacy on, you know, impeachment. That was a long time ago, um, but also on democracy reform. She's an attorney. Um, so we're going to spend some time on things like, well, I don't know, the Supreme Court. Um, anyway, Megan, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so glad to have this conversation with you. It's been a while since we've done this on the radio, and um, mm-hmm. so much has happened since you were last here. <laughs> you know, um, but let's let's spend some time on the Supremes. You know, I, we spent time on this show on all of the um, the, the democracy eroding. Uh, women loathing, whatever you want to say, things that are happening in state governments around the country. That's the sword. But the shield that protects them, that makes it possible for them to get away with it, is this Supreme Court. That's correct. They, uh, this court, th- this conservative majority, I guess I should say, to be very specific about who it is on the court that's doing this. Yeah, they're not conservative you know, not just a, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, they're, they're not just people I disagree with on, say, statutory interpretation. These particular uh, six justices were picked to erode our fundamental rights. You know, there's this whole process through which, you know, federal society and other dark money groups really flex their influence in who Republican presidents should choose as their Supreme Court nominees. And this is the result. You end up with a court that's been captured by really MAGA extremists who, you know, not only last term overturned Roe v. Wade and kind of threw access to reproductive health care into chaos across the country, but this term have been chipping away at environmental protections, chipping away and undermining workers' rights. Um, Some of the voting rights cases have been surprising, (laughs) you know, surprisingly good, and yet the kind of undertone of some of these cases still really suggests that this court is itself, you know, a threat to our democracy. The court is supposed to protect and expand democracy, but this court has been really hostile to the Voting Rights Act um, and to democratic, little d democratic participation pretty much across the board. Yes. Um, I read the decision and the, the one that said Alabama's uh, uh, racially drawn districts didn't meet the statute. They didn't say they were unconstitutional. They said they didn't meet the voting rights statute. And um, and this is um, Alan V. Milligan. But it it was a narrow decision. It was written, um, I think, defensively. But then I read Clarence Thomas's dissent. And yeah. And it made my knees weak. I mean, I was terrified. Yes, I think um, 
You know, anytime you read <laughs> a dissent by, say, Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito, uh, the, the, that is the intention, is to make you nervous, right? Uh, that all they need is, you know, a couple more votes and their vision for what our country should be would be reality. And they fell short by by two votes, I believe, this time. Um, but But what you end up with is, you know, sort of this, piecemeal kind of patchwork uh, way that the court interprets um, not just the Voting Rights Act, but other really kind of civil rights statutes that um, that it, it almost feels like they're just trying to avoid the worst possible outcome, but that doesn't actually, it doesn't always help. <laughs> it's just, it could be worse. And I think we all deserve a little bit better than a court that is issuing opinions that could be worse. We should be, we should have a court that is issuing opinions that are very good, but we don't have that. You know, and so when you read these dissents, it's like, oh, wow, it really could be worse. And that is very scary. But what we've got is still pretty bad, too. Megan, you said earlier that the job of the Supreme Court is, you know, to protect our rights and to expand our democracy. But they don't see it that way. They look at the Constitution as a conservative document that doesn't say Mm -hmm. that. They, they, and they pretend that, you know, the stirring parts of the Declaration of Independence are irrelevant for who we are. Um, mm-hmm. th- that the, I mean, after all, the Constitution is about property rights in so many ways, and that's the only way they look at this. Yeah, that is very true for this court. And I think a lot of times, you know, you, you and I and, and folks on the left think about the court the way it was between, I don't know, 19... 19- 50 and 1992, when, you know, the court really was expanding fundamental rights. The court was saying, yes, you have a, the right to to bodily autonomy. You have the right to make choices about yourself. You have the right to vote. You uh, Black students have the right to attend integrated schools. And so I think we have this conception of the court that is no longer true, that the court grants rights to people, that the court expands rights to people, marginalized people, which I genuinely believe should be the role of the court. It should be a protector of democracy and and a expander of democracy. But this court, very, very much so, was hand-selected by wealthy, corporate, mostly white interests uh, to roll back those protections that the court had previously granted to to underserved communities, and that's where we find ourselves now. So you're right. The, the group that currently has ma- the majority on the court does believe that whatever it was that was in Thomas Jefferson's mind 250 years ago should control our destiny today. And most people don't agree with that, but that's Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and John Roberts' point of view. Yeah, but the, but um, I, none of them is hired as a clerk and historian who might actually help them understand what was in their mind because it's a lie. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's about it's yeah. about let's look. Look, we can we can we can think of the Constitution in one way, and we can use it to shift power, and that's what we're interested in. So, what do you do about this? I mean, you've thought about them. What what can we do? Yeah, there's a lot. Well, one, there are many, many problems facing the Supreme Court. It's it's not just the decisions that they're making. It's like their extracurriculars as well have become an issue. 
um, you know, obviously there's been a, a wealth of reporting about Clarence Thomas's, you know, free vacations that were given to him by this billionaire MAGA donor named Harlan Crow. He was on private flights. He was on fancy yachts. He was going on these all expenses paid trips. In addition to that, Harlan Crow was also sort of a benefactor for Clarence Thomas's one of his relatives. He paid for this person's private schooling. He, <laughs> Harlan Crow, paid Clarence Thomas's mother's rent. Like all of this stuff, you know. Well, Megan, I'm simple guy. I'm a, I'm a simple guy, <laughs> no. and when I see that in Chicago. Well, look, when anybody sees it in Chicago, um, uh, and we usually do around our aldermen, they just go to jail. We call it bribery, and we send them to jail. Yes, and I think you know. And by the way, not just that- not just the alderman who took the bribe, but the business guy who gave him the bribe. So I mean, yes. I, you know, Clarence may be protected, but Harlan Crow should be charged with bribery. I don't think that Clarence Thomas is protected. <laughs> I think that there's a very strong argument that both of them have broken the law. And on top of that, he didn't disclose that any of these gifts have been given to him. So there's this one bucket of work of where we're holding the Supreme Court accountable for those sorts of things, that they're not behaving as though they're worthy of the office that they hold. The Supreme, being a Supreme Court justice is supposed to be a highly respected gig, you know? But the way they're, tra- they're treating it like it's just like a... I don't know, like a after party where they get free gift bags at rich people. Right. I mean, to go back to my example earlier, Megan, they're less popular. They're less trusted than the Chicago City Council. uh, Right. Now, that that ought to wake everybody up. I mean, Justice Thomas, you run a court that's less popular than the alderman in the city of Chicago. (laughs) Be proud of that. So, so where we're at, so I think where we're at now is one, there are the Senate Democrats who control the Senate really need to be a lot more aggressive holding not just Clarence Thomas accountable, but the other justices too who have had pretty severe ethical lapses because, you know, just last year we found out that Alito had leaked a Supreme Court decision before it was released, um, in the Hobby Lobby case, which was about contraception access to anti-abortion activists before that decision was released officially by the court. There's a lot of ethical concerns happening um, among the justices and just feels like Democrats led by speaking of Chicago and speaking of Illinois led by um, Dick Durbin, who's the chairman of the judiciary committee has not shown much of an interest in holding hearings and holding these justices accountable. They are not untouchable demigods. They are subject to oversight by Congress, and Congress is kind of letting them get away with it at this point. That's, like, not acceptable. So that's, like, the first thing that Congress should be doing. They should be dragging Harlan Crow in front of the the committee. They should be subpoenaing him. They should subpoena Clarence Thomas, and they should subpoena his taxes also, and really, like, get to the bottom of what's going on um, with Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow. And not only that, but whatever Harlan Crow's relationship is to Ginny Thomas, who's implicated in the January 6th insurrection, these are all things Congress has authority to investigate. Um, and while I think Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island has done a very good job of that, Dick Durbin kind of like blows it off in the press like it's not that big of a deal. And that's wrong. It is. It's a huge deal. <laughs> the same people who are taking away our fundamental constitutional rights are not playing by the same rules as everybody else. A massive scandal, and it should be treated a lot more seriously uh, by by Dick Durbin in particular. 
And what um, law would Dick, I mean, Dick could hold a hearing. What was the, what the outcome, um, it certainly brings things to light. But I, uh, I think Congress has the power. It's certainly being debated, but I think it has the power to enforce ethics legislation on a co-equal branch of government. I mean, they have done so on the executive branch. I don't know why they mm-hmm. can't do so on the legislative branch. Um, and the Justice Department has the power, it's a different branch of government, to hold uh, people in the judiciary accountable for for breaking those ethics rules. So, that, I mean, there is a path to doing something. There is, yeah. And I think that hearings are a great place to start. I think taking a vote on anti-corruption legislation to kind of rein the court in in that regard um, is really critical, too. There's there's at least three different bills right now that would create um, a Supreme Court ethics code and would institute penalties on justices who don't follow it. So that that should be a priority, I, I would say, for Democrats over the summer to show the American people that they care about this, that it is important that the public has faith in the Supreme Court and that the Democrats are fighting to restore the public's faith in the court. I don't think ethics rules are enough, but at the very least, (laughs) Congress should be exercising its authority to impose reforms on the court in this way. Yep. Okay. That's the lowest floor. Um, yes. <laughs> what, what about expanding the court? Expanding the court is is the best thing we could do to to restore the public space in the Supreme Court as an institution. Right now, it is beyond obvious that the six um, conservative justices are not on the level. And again, this is not just like, oh, this is sour grapes because Megan disagrees with the outcome of a Supreme Court case. What we're talking about is is a lot more severe than that. It's not just that I disagree; it's that these or that people on the left or that Democrats disagree with these outcomes. It's that they're making these decisions not rooted in the facts, not really rooted in the law, not rooted in the Constitution. They're they're doing political favors for Republicans <laughs> when you know when they attack the Voting Rights Act. That's a gift to just as like you said earlier. It's like there's. They're the shield that protects some of the worst behavior at the state level that makes it so difficult for people to be involved in um, elections and in our democracy. Um, Again, they're undermining our personal freedoms. They're taking those things away and all the while behaving as though they are kings and queens that don't have to follow any rules themselves. Um, this is not an uh, this is not an issue that can be resolved through just ethics reforms or anti-corruption nope. laws. This is this is something that um, if you were to add four justices who are actually committed to the rule of law and to the Constitution, the influence of the conservatives who have been captured by special interests would not have a direct impact on our lives the way it does the way they do now. Yeah. So let, let's say that. Uh, uh, um let me try a different way of saying it. You would not put four ju- four left leaning uh, ex- four left leaning uh, alitos on the court because that's because it's not about the outcomes; it's about the rule of law. And um, a, you have some confidence yeah. that if they paid attention to th- things uh, like stare decisis, they paid attention to the way law gets made over time 
in a democracy as opposed to um, using their moment on the Supreme Court. I mean, you wouldn't put me on the Supreme Court. I know you have high feelings for me, <laughs> right? But you wouldn't put me on the Supreme Court, not because I would do anything bad, but because I wouldn't do, I, I could not be the kind of justice who paid attention to the um, to the uh, development of law through time, through trial and uh, appeal that is the job of that court, right? You want people who are right. true jurists. And, that, and, and Republicans and Democrats both did that for a very long time, right? And it gave us a court that created more freedom than any people in the world had ever seen. And, and by the way, and didn't exactly screw up the business world. We also had the biggest economy the world had ever seen. So it wasn't anti-business. But greed is greed. And they said, you know what? We need a different Supreme Court because we should not be told we can't dump that toxic stuff in a river. Forget that. We need a court that will let us do that. And, and, and those pesky voters in the way of that. So while you're at it, let's get rid of their right to vote, too. This is unconscionable and has nothing to do with the rule of law. It does have to do with the rule by law, but every dictator does that. I think that's exactly right. It's not about knowing. I mean, what we've got now is basically six people where it is almost guaranteed how they're going to rule. The outcomes are almost, you know, they're like, are basically pre-written. That's why they were picked. You know, you know, the federal society basically fosters legal talent from law school through their entire careers because they want to make sure that if these people, these Federalist Society members become judges, that they won't deviate from the plan, right? And that's how we ended up with these six um, on the court now. But also, you're right, it's not about knowing the outcomes in advance. It's about trusting the outcome when you get it. And we don't have that right now. We can't trust that the outcomes that we are receiving from the Supreme Court are fair because of their their decision making is so questionable and it's partisan by these captured. partisan yeah i, yeah. I so, apologize so, for my no, right. not, i'm sorry no, no, i shouldn't have ran i apologize no no it's, it was perfect but the, the point is it's like it's not about picking just it's not about picking four new justices that are guaranteed to give me the outcome that i want it's about picking four new justices that are going to give an outcome that we can believe and trust is fair that's what this is about it's not about you know, rigging the court in favor of Democrats. <laughs> it's about rigging the court in favor of justice. That is not the court that we have now, but that's the court we could have if we work really hard towards this goal of adding four seats to the Supreme Court. Now, again, just really quickly, it took Re- Republicans 50 years to get us to the point where we are now, where they fully captured the court and they're getting everything that they want. They've overturned Roe. Everything else they're getting, it's not they're they're sitting pretty right now. That took fifty years, so I'm not suggesting that um, resolving this problem is going to be easy and fast. It's not, but we have to start somewhere, and this is where we're starting: <laughs> is trying to get as many people engaged as possible on the goal of fixing this court. And um, our view at Indivisible is that the the best reform you could pursue is court expansion. It's not the only one, but it's one that you kind of have to do if you want the other reforms to stick. Because, you know, who could say if these if this current crop of justices would even acquiesce to an ethics code? 
if they don't have to. Well, right. Well, we know they don't have to, and they're not. So we know the answer to that. So we need to put in one where they have no choice. Um, right. uh, uh, Megan, I, I am in awe of Americans and of the power of our people. And even though this is is weird, sort of mystical thinking, but I think the I think the fact that John Roberts knows that Americans hold his court in less esteem than the Chicago City Council, um, in part, that colored his uh, uh, ruling in the Allen case in Alabama. I, I just mm-hmm. think it. I think it, it, people think, you know what, Congress has to do all the work. Congress has to pass uh, ethics legislation and Congress has to expand the court. But if you're listening, make your voice heard. Let so loud that John Roberts can hear you because he does not want to be the Supreme, you know, the, 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 the uh, chief justice of a Supreme Court with, that, that the public hates that Congress had to fix. John Roberts is acutely aware of the publicity surrounding the court, and he does not want his own reputation as the chief justice because he's going to be written about in history books to be to, he has he's thinking about the long game. He's thinking about how he's going to be remembered and. He's a, he's a PR animal at the end of the day. He comes from, you know, kind of a political world, actually. He worked for the Reagan administration for a time. Attacking the Voting Rights Act was his whole job, actually. Um, and so he does worry, I think, about the public's perception of the court a great deal. Um, he still wants to do bad things, but I do think that he will occasionally <clears throat> moderate his position or do trade-offs where he can be bad on one thing, but then a little bit better on something else. And so I think we saw that in Alan B. Milligan, where he very surprisingly, again, this is a person, John Roberts is a person who started his career very explicitly with the goal in mind of gutting the Voting Rights Act. And he has successfully done that as the Chief Justice, starting almost, actually, we're very, really close to the 10-year anniversary of Shelby County v. Holder, which was the start of gutting the Voting Rights Act, thanks to John Roberts. So we get now to Alan B. Milligan, where he very surprisingly joined the liberals and Brett Kavanaugh in saying, actually, <clears throat> there should be a second um, majority, or excuse me, minority, majority district in Alabama. These maps don't pass muster. But when you get to the very end <laughs> of that opinion, massive caveat at the end, where John Roberts basically says, I'm still open to the possibility that the use of race in deciding how to draw congressional maps might not pass my test. So if somebody out there, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, somebody out there has a better challenge that is slightly less racist than what Alabama was trying to do, we're open to it. So the yeah. part of the, so it's a, it's a win for, for right now. We're going to get another congressional district, and it has implications in other states too. All very good. But people should be aware that this court and these people are not friendly to Voting Rights Act in the long term. No, Megan, he was very clear that this was, that, that what they did in Alabama didn't meet the test of the statute. And this was a statutory, they were thinking of statutory stare decisis as opposed to constitutional. They did not, he did not say this is a, the, the law is constitutional. He said, we're not, that's not the question before me. The question before me is, did what Alabama do meet the law? 
I'm open to deciding that the whole law is unconstitutional. Right. (laughs) So it it really opens the door for, you know, Republican attorneys general or right wing litigators to bring something a little bit more respectable in front of the court that can kind of do the same thing that Alabama was trying to do, but with less baggage, I guess I would say. Yep. 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 Appalling. Well, okay, so to, uh, talk a little bit about Indivisible. Like, wh- what, what's the focus? How can people connect with the work? Yes, of course. Um, Indivisible, we are chugging along with the, um, our big focus at the moment is um, trying to hold Republicans who are elected in districts that Biden won in 2020. We're trying to hold those, guys, those folks accountable. There are 18 of them. We're calling them the unrepresentative 18. And so if folks are interested in learning more about that work, how we're trying to hold those 18 Republicans accountable, they can go to unrepresentative18.org and learn more about that. You can always just go to regularindivisible.org to just kind of figure out what's going on, whether you live in a Republican state or district or a Democratic state or district. We have stuff for everybody to be doing the lead up to 2024. Sign up for our newsletter and find out what's going on. Um, A big part of my work, obviously, is continuing to try to hold the courts accountable. And so if that interests you, sign up for our newsletter. There's lots of stuff to do. we're in a bit of a mess, even though we've defeated Trump, but Trumpism continues to crop up in different places, either in Congress or in the judiciary. And so there's the work of activism never ceases. And so that is what Indivisible will be working on <laughs> forever. As always, Megan, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Okay. Everybody, that was Megan Hatcher Mays, Indivisible's director of democracy policy. We are going to break for the news. And uh, the next hour, I'm going to hear from you at 773 But I have one more guest before then. Stay tuned.